How do you begin a relationship with somebody? If you want to get to know somebody, what's generally the first thing you do when you talk to them? You introduce yourself, right? Hi, my name is... This is who I am. This is what we're going to focus on this morning. Who is Jesus? How does God introduce Himself to us? I'm thankful that God does have a name, aren't you? He's a personal God. And He wants us to know what He's like. Because He wants to have a relationship with us. And in the book of John, one of Jesus' best friends, this man John, one of his disciples, wrote this book of the Bible, and he records for us in the book of John seven different occasions that Jesus, where Jesus introduces himself as I am. A few moments ago, I talked about how we saw back in the book of Exodus this mention. Let me read those verses to you. I think we have them for you here to follow along. Exodus 3 Verse 13 and 14, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. You see, the Egyptians believed in all kinds of different gods. They really believed in a pantheon of gods. The nation of Egypt had been in power for a very long time, much longer than the United States has been around. The Egyptian nation lasted for many, many years as a strong, powerful, world-dominant nation. And during this time, they overthrew many other people and other nations and other peoples. And often they would just incorporate their gods, their false gods, into the pantheon of gods that they worshipped. And so people worshipped all kinds of different gods. But when God, the one true God, sent Moses back to Egypt, he sent him with a declaration saying, I am hath sent me unto you. I am who I am. Now, when God said this to Moses, and Moses then went and took this to the children of Israel, over the next number of years, later on as, as even the Bible was being written down in the Old Testament, and as the religious leaders in the temple and in the tabernacles, as they would speak about God, did you know they actually didn't use this name for God again. They were so careful that not to take God's name in vain, right? Which is the third commandment, if you remember. Don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. They didn't want to take God's name in vain, so they wouldn't even speak His name. You know, they wouldn't even write His name fully either. And when the, later on, when the scribes were making copies of the Bible, when they would come to the name of God, they would actually go and take out a new quill, use a new pen that had never been used before just to write his name. They wanted to be so careful with the name of God. Now, if you think about it, so this name of God, I am, had not been used for many, many years 
in a spoken way or a written way. When you go back and look at biblical history, it was some 1,400 years from the time this name of God was used until later on when Jesus then begins walking around Galilee and people say, well, who are you? And Jesus says, I am. Now, I want to help set the stage a little bit for us this morning because for us to hear this name of Jesus, it may not jump out at us the same way it would have jumped out at those people back then. Remember, this is a name that has not been used in over a thousand years. This is a name that even though the people knew it, nobody spoke it, nobody wrote it because they didn't want to take God's name in vain. And now, here is Jesus, this person that they don't really know yet, who's walking around and he's telling people that he is the I Am. This made people sit up and listen. This caused people, some to believe and follow him. Others, it caused them to turn their backs on him and want to kill him. And that's what they did later on. Because they thought he was being blasphemous. Jesus declares himself seven different times in the book of John to be I am, to be God. Did you know there's no other major religion in the world whose leader claimed to be God and claimed to do it seven times? There are people who claim to be very wise men, people that claim to be prophets. But Jesus didn't just claim to be a wise man or a prophet. Jesus claimed to be God himself. Jesus is God. What's interesting in the book of John is as Jesus goes through these seven different I am statements of who he is, he compares himself to seven different things. And these things that he compares himself have a a physical side, we'll put it that way, and and a spiritual side. He uses physical needs to help to point out spiritual needs. And I think that's very helpful for us today because often we're very aware of our physical needs, aren't we? We wake up in the morning, I'm hungry, was for breakfast. Some of you, maybe you have a cup of coffee, you have something for breakfast, you go on about your day, not too many hours later, I'm hungry. What are we doing for lunch? A couple hours later, What's for snack time? The English call it tea. We just call it snack time. We like our snacks, don't we? Ladies have an advantage. They carry a purse. It's a little bit harder for us to hide snacks in our pockets, guys, but we try or we go to the snack machine at work. We buy something because we get hungry. We know about our physical needs. And then, men, you come home from work or ladies, you come home and you look around and you go, what are we going to eat for dinner? Kids come home from school, mom, what's for supper? Right, they're hungry. Then if you're like me, you eat supper, and then a few hours later, you go, snack time again. Is there any ice cream around here? See, we're talking about addictions, I tell you. If you haven't had Bluebell, then you just don't know. But if you do, it's really good stuff, right? We understand physical need, don't we? And I'm talking about hunger, but you understand all kinds of other physical needs too, don't you? And the reality is we are often much more willing to be focused on our physical needs than our spiritual needs. We will spend a lot more money 
fixing our physical problems than we will to fix our spiritual problems. We'll spend a lot more time dealing with our physical needs than time dealing with our spiritual needs. We will spend a lot more effort working on fixing physical struggles than we will to deal with spiritual struggles. Because the physical is very real to us, isn't it? It's something we feel very deeply about. It's something that we can touch. It's something that we can understand. And the spiritual, on the other hand, we don't always understand it as well. We don't comprehend what's going on as well. And we don't understand the ramifications of leaving our spiritual struggles alone. So some of us would rather push the spiritual aside and deal with the physical because we feel like that's more important. But the physical is only for this life. The spiritual is for eternity. But we don't understand eternity, do we? Because all we can see is today. All we can remember is yesterday and last week and last year. And for some of us, the memory gets hazier the further it goes back, right? We don't know what's coming tomorrow. We think we're prepared for tomorrow, but many times all we're doing to prepare for tomorrow is to deal with the physical needs, not the spiritual. So I think it's wonderful that Jesus, the master teacher, Jesus, God in human flesh, uses physical things to help us to understand spiritual needs. And he gives us the first one here in John, John chapter 6. In verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Jump down to verse 47 in the same chapter. He says, Verily, verily, this is truth, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the bread of life which, cometh, which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus said, first of all, in John chapter 6, the first I am statement that he makes here is, I am the bread of life. And then he gives us an illustration, and he's speaking to Jewish people who would have remembered from their history what he's talking about. Talking about when they were in the wilderness, right? Remember, children of Israel, they're wandering in the wilderness. What happens? Just like you, they were hungry, right? And they said, Moses, you've led us out here in the wilderness to die. There's nothing to eat. Maybe it sounds like your children at home. Mom, you're just going to let us die. There's nothing to eat. Mom's like, it's okay. We got it covered. There's no food in the fridge. I'm thankful for mothers and grandmothers who can make something out of nothing sometimes when it comes to food out of the fridge. Because we look in there and go, oh, I can't see anything. There's just some milk and, and some bread and a few different things. And then mom will make a beautiful, wonderful meal out of things for us. And it's wonderful. But what happened to these children of Israel in the wilderness? God sent manna. He sent this bread from heaven. But do you remember what was special about this manna? It was something that appeared in the morning, and then once the dew melted off or evaporated off, the bread was gone. So they had to get out every morning to gather it. 
What would happen if they gathered more than enough for that day? What would happen to the leftovers? It would rot. Except for on Friday, with the Sabbath coming, the Bible said to gather a double portion because there would be no manna come on the Sabbath day. So if you didn't gather enough on Friday, you wouldn't have enough to eat on Saturday. Doesn't that help to enlighten your thinking when it comes to Jesus and the Lord's Prayer when He said, Give us this day our daily bread. What do you think he's referring to if you're in the Jewish mindset? That manna. Every day they had to go get it. Jesus says here in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He said, your fathers, they ate of the manna that came from heaven, but they died. Jesus said, I'm going to give you bread that if you eat of this bread, you will never die. Jesus is using a physical need to help us understand a spiritual problem. There's really a question here for us to consider. This question, where do you find satisfaction? What makes you feel full? Maybe you like bread. A lot of you like bread probably. Maybe you're gluten-free this morning, you can't have bread, but you're looking forward to heaven someday when all that gluten intolerance will be taken away. You can have cinnamon rolls and goodies and it'll all be great. Some of us like bread too much. But every day we think about feeding our body, don't we? And Jesus here is teaching us a spiritual lesson from a physical thing, bread. He's teaching us about provision, of where our answers come from, of where our needs are met. See, there are different ways we can deal with our spiritual side. Some people this morning, maybe even in here, are starving their souls. You need spiritual bread, but you're starving your soul this morning. You may be starving your soul because of a lack of prayer. Starving your soul because of a lack of God's Word in your life. Starving your soul because you don't have a relationship. You're not building relationships with the body of Christ, with other believers in the church. All those things, a lack of those things in your life can end up starving your soul. Some people may have a life that looks like it's full and abundant, and yet inside, spiritually, they're suffering, they're starving. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Maybe you're sick in your soul this morning. Maybe you're trying to feed your soul, but you're feeding it with things that are rotten, things that are not good. Your soul is sick because you're feeding it with bad religion, bad philosophy, pop psychology, whatever it is, the answers that this world promises to give and says, this will satisfy your soul. Listen, folks, nothing can satisfy your soul but Jesus Christ. He said, I am the bread of life. There is nothing that brings satisfaction like Jesus. You could be starving in your soul. You could be sick in your soul. Or you could satisfy your soul. Jesus can satisfy your soul. Folks, this morning, the only way to find true satisfaction in life, it's not through drugs. It's not through alcohol. It's not through a human relationship. It's not through money. It's not through position. It's not through fame. It's only through Jesus. 
How do you nourish your soul? Jesus says, back in John chapter 6, verse 47, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. So how do you nourish your soul? Believe on Jesus. Faith in Jesus, who Jesus is, and what He has done. And He says, if you believe in Him, you will have everlasting life. We take great care, we try to take care of our bodies, right? We try to do what will satisfy our needs. Make sure we're not hungry. Make sure we have enough food to eat. Things to satisfy those cravings of our body. And Jesus says there's something far more important than your physical body. It's your spiritual. How's your spiritual body this morning? How's your soul? Is it starving? Is it sick? Or is it satisfied? Jesus is the bread of life. Are you satisfied in Him? The second one, second I am statement that Jesus makes is, is found in John chapter 8, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Look at John chapter 8, verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Once again, Jesus uses a physical need to explain a spiritual truth. Light. He's the light of the world. Think about this, how picturesque this would be, again, to these people that he's speaking to. At night in Israel, when it got dark, nobody went over to the wall and turned on the switch and turned on the light, right? There's no electricity. They might could light a little lamp, light a candle, a little bit of light here and there, but it was dark. And at night, when it was dark, it was dangerous. You didn't want to venture out in the dark. You might trip and fall. Someone might be laying in wait for you. We live in a dark world too, don't we? And it's not dark because we don't have bright LED lights and neon lights and halogen lights and all the different kind of lights that we have. But it's a spiritually dark world. We live in a world that's dark and getting darker. Things are getting worse. It's less safe. It's less joyful. It's less life-giving day after day, isn't it? You probably pay attention to the news. We've got confirmation hearings going on in the White House. We have people being shot and killed in our major cities and across our land. We have all kinds of horrible things going on right in our own country. And that's just our country. Then you expand that around the world. It's a dark place. This world is not getting progressively better, as some would try to have you believe. It's getting worse, and that's not a surprise, or it shouldn't be a surprise to us as believers, because the Bible does tell us that the days will get worse and worse. So wait a minute, I thought Jesus was in charge. He is. He's the light of the world. But we live in a very dark place because of the sin of this world. The atheist would have you to believe there is no light. There is no God. 
The Eastern religions which have you believe, well, the light comes from within you. And if you just look deep inside yourself, you will find the light and you can shine it to others. Folks, looking deep inside yourself only produces more darkness because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And while it's a nice thought to think that, well, if we just look deep in ourselves, we'll find that goodness that's inside all of us. Folks, it's just not there. It's just not there. Any goodness that we have in us comes from God. Because He is the light. We are not the light. The pluralist, the person who says, well, all religions have some kind of light in them, they would have you to believe, just believe whatever you want. As long as you believe in something, it's okay. But Jesus says, no, that's not right. He says, I am the light of the world. That doesn't leave any room for anybody else to be the light. Because He is, and no one else. So here's the question for us this morning to consider. Are you following the light? Are you following the light of the world? I, I think there are people in this world that believe in, a, in an academic sense. They, they believe that Jesus exists. And they may believe that Jesus is God. Not in the sense of full believing faith to salvation where someone has trusted Him with their life. But they could mentally agree, at least academically, that Jesus is God. The reality is some that may say they believe, they don't truly believe because they're not following Him. He's not the light of their life. This world is spiritually dark and the only way to navigate in this dark world is to follow Jesus. So how do you follow someone? Well, you've got to be really close to them, don't you? You have to walk right with them and listen to what they do. All of the boys and girls in here, and probably most of us grown-ups, can remember a time in our life when we played the game, follow the leader. Right? You had all the kids line up in a big, long line, and it's follow the leader, and they're marching around, the leader would raise his arm, and everybody else had to raise their arm, right? And there'd always be that one child in the line who wasn't paying attention. Everybody's raising their hand, this one kid, he's just looking off over doing his own thing. Why are we here? You can't follow someone unless you're right behind them, unless you're watching them very carefully, unless you're close to them. If I said, follow me, and we're going to play follow the leader, and then you headed out over in the room to get some more donuts, and I walked off, could you really follow me? No. No. Light is so important to follow when it's a dark world. Here's part of the reason I think we don't follow Jesus like we should. We don't really understand the darkness that this world is in. We don't understand how dark sin is. Sin is what sends us to hell. Sin is what separates us from God. It's dark. It's really bad. And sometimes we want to excuse a little bit. Like a little bit of darkness is okay. A little bit is not okay. Now, Jesus loves sinners. Jesus died for sinners. If you're a sinner, like I am, and you are, <laughs> Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. As Christians who have had our sin forgiven, guess what? We're still sinners too. 
So we need to love others. This isn't like, well, your sin's worse than my sin or my sin's not as bad as yours. That's not what this is talking about. What we all need is to follow the light. Follow Jesus. Walk closely with him. A number of years ago, it's hard to believe, it's been 15 years ago, I spent a summer in Mexico working in, with a church down there in Cuernavaca, Mexico. I was telling Tom about it last night. I said at the time you think that you probably did all this stuff and then you look back later and you think, I don't know if I was much of a help at all, but I sure had a good time. I learned a lot. One of the challenges for me was the language. But I worked really hard at it. And that's why I can speak some Spanish today is because I spent that summer in Mexico. And uh, while I was there, we spent a week. Several of us traveled from Cuernavaca, which is in the state of Morelos, down to a, a village, a town south of us in the mountains in the state of Guerrero, which is starting to get pretty far south in Mexico. If you know your Mexican geography, I know some of you do. So we traveled down there. We're up in, the, in this little mountain town. As far as I know, is the only English speaker for hundreds of miles around. At least I didn't meet any other English speakers. There were no English speakers with us on the trip. It was just me. So if I wanted to talk... And obviously, you know, I like to talk, right? I had to do it in Spanish or talk to myself, which maybe I do sometimes. I don't know. Or I could email Shandy. We were dating at the time. And even in this little town where we had no running water, and this was in 2003, no running water. There was some electricity, but not a whole lot. Not everybody's house had it. Of course, there's no air conditioning, those kind of things. Uh, we stayed at the house of a baker, and he baked his bread in a wood-fired oven that was made out of uh, clay. That guy was amazing, watching him work that bread with his hands. He could do two things at the same time with different hands. It was amazing watching him roll out all that bread. We're bathing with buckets of water over our head. They still had an internet cafe, so I could still email Shandy, even from down there. Couldn't have called her on the phone, probably, but I could email her. So I went to the internet cafe, and it was 10 pesos for an hour on the internet. Of course, internet in 2003 in Guerrero, Mexico, is a little different than the high-speed internet that you and I are used to today. But it still worked to send an email. So we talked back and forth. So anyway, some of us took a trip. While, so we're, we've traveled down to Guerrero. Then some of us went on up into the mountains from there to a group of people in a, in a little town called Tlapa, T-L-A-P-A. This is an Indian village up there. They don't even speak Spanish. So you know you're really out in the sticks when you're in Mexico and you're in the place where they don't speak Spanish in Mexico. But there are places like that. And these people raised peaches and pears, so we had a translator with us. And so I, I learned some things, saw some things I'd never seen before. You know, we're talking sitting in grass huts on mud floors with the fire going up through the smoke in the, in the middle of the roof right there. Beans, tortillas, and Coca-Cola. You can get that anywhere. It's amazing. It wasn't cold, but we had it. Anyway, we'd spend all day up there working with these people and sharing the gospel with them and doing music. We had a music team with us. And, and of course, it's all folks from down there in Mexico. I'm the only gringo around. 
and really stick out because I'm a tall one at that, you know, and so everybody's looking at me like, who is this guy? I think they just took me just so people would come because they're like, wow, <laughs> what is this guy? What does he look like? I'm having a good time. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, it's time to travel. I do have a point here, but <laughs> it's time to travel back down to the town where we're staying, back to the house where we were going to sleep that night. As we're headed back down the mountain, there's a whole bunch more to this story, but I won't tell you because I don't have time, but I'll tell you later. Anyway, we're all packed in a Ford Explorer. Nine of us. Hey, who cares about seatbelts down there, right? <laughs> Stack them in. As long as you get somebody in, that's okay. Nine of us, a cello, two violins, two trumpets, a flute, and peaches and pears piled on top of us. <laughs> Because people are kind, and they just wanted to bless us. So there were three of us laying down in the back. I mean, we were just all tangled up. Instruments are laid on top of us because we didn't want to smash the instruments. And then they, they brought all these crates of fruit to give us. And they're like, I don't know what to do with it. So they just dumped it in on top of us. Hey, we didn't want to squish the fruit, so we're laying real still. And it, we're headed down the mountain. Of course, this is a mountain road in... In the out in the boonies in Mexico, and so parts of it have washed away. There's giant holes where that are big enough to swallow a Ford Explorer kind of holes. And you think Houston has potholes? Okay. Anyway, we're talking rough, and it's starting to get dark. And then one of the guys in the back with me, because we couldn't move at all for fear of smashing a peach, you know, or an instrument, and he gets a cramp in his leg. He starts calling out, I need to stop, you know, except it was in Spanish, but I'm translating for you to help you out this morning. So they stop the vehicle, we get out, and he's stretching his leg, and he's feeling better, and the guy's like, we got to get back in the car, it's getting dark. You didn't want to be caught on that mountain road in the dark. For one, you might lose your vehicle over the side, right, down the hole. There were nine of us in a Ford Explorer, just not smart anyway, and the headlights weren't working either. So it was very important that we got out. We learned a little bit the value of light that night. Obviously, we made it back safely. Here I am. The other eight, no, we all made it back safely. Light's important, isn't it? But we don't really understand the value of light till we understand darkness. I've told you stories before about being in a cave, being dark. You appreciate light when you understand what darkness is. And we need to get a clear view of ourselves and our sin and understand the darkness of this world so we understand what Jesus says and what He means when He says, I am the light of the world. Are you following the light? Are you following the light? Number three, and I'll move quickly here, John chapter 10, we find the third I am statement of Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 7, Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. 
So we've had, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. Now he says, I am the door. What does a door do? A door protects an entrance, doesn't it? Now, there are some people that would say, why does God have a door to protect the entrance? Because if he was really a loving God, wouldn't he just let everybody in? Let me ask you this question. Dads, as a loving father, would you be a loving father if you took the front door off your house? You wouldn't love your family very much, would you? If you're like me, you go around and check the doors every night, maybe a couple times. Some of you ladies probably do the same things. We, yeah, everybody's checking doors. Why? Make sure they're locked, closed. I do it around here too. Why? It's not because I don't love the people that are outside the door. It's because I love my family more. Jesus is the door, not because God's trying to keep people out that should come in. It's because He loves the people that are in. And God says, speaking through Jesus, Jesus says, I am the door. He says, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. He wants you to come in the door. But to get in, you must go through Jesus. And there are a lot of people that try to get into heaven a different way. They think there's a back door or a side door or a door that they design themselves. Folks, you don't get to build the door. You don't get to decide where it is. Jesus is the door. It's as simple as that. If he's God, he gets to say what is right because he made it all anyway. And he's in charge of it all. Jesus says, I am the door. The shepherd would protect the sheep. Often they would build this sheepfold out of stone or, or sticks or something there next to, in the hillside. And often the shepherd himself would lay across the entrance and it would be the shepherd himself who was the door. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the door. I'm jumping ahead of myself because number four is that he's a good shepherd. If someone came to you and said, I hate you and I hate your family, can I come and live with you? What would you say? No, of course not. But folks, that is what people are saying to God if they're trying to get into heaven and they're not coming through Jesus. They're not his friend, they're his enemy. And God loves his family enough to put a door. But he's told everybody about the door. And he said, this is the way to come in. Just come in through the door. But the door is a door of love, a door of protection, a door of safety. Moving right along, Jesus then in the same chapter, John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. He's the door. The shepherd was off in the door. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd, verse 11, giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf cometh, coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he's an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Here's the question I want you to consider. Who are you going to trust to lead you in this life? 
Who are you going to trust to lead you? Some of us only trust ourselves, right? I don't trust anybody but myself. I hate to break it to you, but trusting yourself isn't going to get you where you need to be. Because you can't see the future. You don't know what's coming. We live in a world that tells people, just trust yourself, trust your heart, follow your heart. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Trusting yourself is not enough. And I realize why people are pushed towards trusting themselves. It's because everywhere else that they've turned, people have let them down. People have used them and abused them and treated them wrongly. And so they say, you know what? I'm not trusting anybody but myself. And Jesus wants to step into your life and says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. He mentions several other people or groups, individuals in this passage. He talks about the hireling, right? The hireling, the person who's just hired to take care of the sheep. What happens when the wolf comes? The hireling runs away. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to give his life for the sheep. He's just there for the money. He's just there to use the sheep for his own benefit. Folks, there are people like that that will dress up and speak to a church on Sunday. And that's all they're there to do is to use the sheep. To pad their pocket or to give them fame. And let me tell you, it's easy to do when we get our eyes off of God on the things of this world. But Jesus is not that way. Jesus is not here to use you. He's not like the wolf who's here to abuse you. He's here to lead you and love you and care for you and protect you. He's the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Some of you say, well, but I'm tough. I can handle it. Listen, sheep are weak. You might be tough, but you're only tough for a sheep. You're just not that tough. I'm not either. Hey, when I was in eighth grade, I was the toughest kid in my whole school. But I was homeschooled. <laughs> Some of you feel tough. But you just don't understand what you're up against, do you? You might be tough, but you're only tough for a sheep. And you can't deal with all the things that are going to come in life. Some people feel really tough, but they're not tough enough because you're just a sheep and I'm just a sheep. We need the good shepherd. The shepherd doesn't use the sheep. He doesn't abuse the sheep. The shepherd cares for the sheep. He loves us and he will even give his life for us. In fact, he already did. Do you know Jesus as your good shepherd? Are you following him? Are you like that sheep that wants to run away all the time? Oh, there's grass greener. No, there isn't. The shepherd promises to lead us in the green pastures, in the still waters, to restore our souls. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, he'll lead us, guide us. His rod and staff will protect us. Oh, if you're able to be here on Wednesday nights, we're studying through Psalm 23 together, and I'm enjoying it. Jesus is the good shepherd. Number five, 
John chapter 11, verse 25, 26. Let me just give you a little background so you understand what's going on in the context. Jesus has just been summoned by Mary and Martha, some of Jesus' best friends. They said, come quickly, your friend Lazarus, our brother Lazarus is sick. Jesus doesn't come right away. He waits a couple of days and then he comes. And by the time he gets there, Lazarus has died and he's been in the ground. And his sister says, Lord, he stinks. But Jesus says to Mary, to Martha, to those people standing there, John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Lazarus died. When was the last time you were at a funeral? Funerals bring things into perspective for us, don't they? None of us look forward to funerals. And yet all of us will at least be at one someday. Our own. Life's going to end. This physical life. And Jesus here uses a physical reality, death, to help us understand a wonderful spiritual truth that He's the resurrection and the life. See, this world is going to end. It's going to pass away. You and I will die someday. All of us will pass away. Because of sin, we all die. Jesus is dealing with this question. Well, then how do we defeat death? How do we do it? Well, eat vitamins, they said. You'll live longer that way. Drink bottled water, they said. It's better for you. Buckle up when you're driving down the road. You'll live longer that way, they said. And while those things may help temporarily on some things, none of them fix the problem of death. It comes. And you can't often even know when it's going to happen. None of us know the exact time. Some of us think we know. I'm close. We all try to live as long as we can, but eventually we all die. I think the day you die is perhaps the most important day in your life. Now some might say, well, no, it's the day I was born. That's the most important day in my life. Well, it was the day I got married. That was the most important day in my life. It was the day my first child was born, the day I... Most important day of my life. Day I became a grandparent. Most important day in my life. Well, those all are, for the most part, wonderful days. The day you die is such an important day in your life because at that point, all of your eternity is determined. It's been determined. And you're either going to spend an eternity separated from God or an eternity with God. And that's forever. That's forever. It perhaps is the most important day of your life. question is, are you ready for it? Are you ready for that day? Because it could come at any time. 
for any of us. And you can be ready, recognizing who Jesus is. Jesus steps on the scene. Remember, people are upset with Him, thinking He's blasphemous, thinking He's using a name that should never even be spoken. But Jesus can use it because He really is God. And He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in Me, though He were dead, yet shall He live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in Me shall never die. Believest thou this? Do you believe? Jesus is the only religious leader to, prom- or to proclaim that He was God. And He's also the only religious leader to ever defeat death. Every other religious leader that ever existed or ever will exist dies or has died. Buddha died. Muhammad died. Even some of our smaller religions that happen in different areas, cults and various things, their leaders die. Jesus died too. But three days later, He rose again. He had victory over death. You say, well, that's just a Bible truth. Yes, but it's reality. He was seen by Many people after he rose from the dead. He performed miracles after he rose from the dead. He walked on this earth some 40 days after he rose from the dead. Even old Thomas, doubting Thomas, he says, well, I'm not going to believe until I put my finger in the holes of his hands and put my hand in his side. And then Jesus appears to him and says, all right, Thomas, here you go. Jesus is the resurrection and life. We're almost done here. Jesus says, John 15, some of you are paying attention. I'm going to switch the order on these last two. There's one in John 15, one in John 14. Let's do the John 15 first. Jesus says in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. Jesus said, I am the vine. Verse 6, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. All these different things that we see in our lives are illustrations of our relationship with God. We get hungry, need something to eat. That ought to remind us that we need some spiritual food too. We're in a dark room, we wake up and we can't see. That ought to remind us that Jesus is the light of the world. We're in a place of struggle and not sure where to go. We ought to remember that Jesus is the door. Remember that Jesus is the good shepherd. We're dealing with death, a death of a loved one. Think of Katie even this morning who texted, pray for me. I'm with a friend whose father just died. What a wonderful time to remind yourself and to remind others, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Even though your loved one may be dead, if they were in Christ, they're alive. Even though you may be facing the prospect of death yourself and not sure what to do or how to handle it, Jesus is 
The resurrection and the life. And here he speaks of this relationship between the branch and the vine. I like to climb trees, or I used to. What happens if you step on a branch that's not firmly attached to the trunk of the tree or to the vine? You're going to fall. I almost did one time. I think my mom was there. Just dangling up above our patio in the back. Climbed up the tree and stepped on a branch I shouldn't have stepped on. Fortunately, I was hanging on to the branch up above, so when the branch below broke, I was able to shimmy back in and, and climb down the tree. I'm glad I didn't fall, but we understand what it's like to step on a branch that's not fully abiding in or fully connected to or attached to the vine. Why does the branch have to stay fully attached to or abide in the vine? Because it is the vine where the branch gets its strength from, right? It's where it gets its food from and water from and, and support from by being firmly attached to the vine. And a branch that's firmly attached can do, as John, 5, or John 15 says, it can bear much fruit. If you go and break a branch off halfway, it's not going to bear the same amount of fruit that a branch that's well attached to the vine will. It's just impossible. Here's something we don't realize, though. I think a lot of us think of ourselves as the vine. We're the source. We're the strength. We're where it comes from. Listen, you're not the vine. Jesus is the vine. And the vine will be fine with or without you. That's why he says here, if you're a vine that's not bearing fruit, or if you're not abiding in Him, he says it's cast forth. He says if you're not abiding in Him, you're cast forth. You're taken away. You're burned. He says if you do abide in Me, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. You can look at John 15 a little bit more and he also deals with one other thing about vines and branches. He says that his father, God the Father, is the husbandman. And what does he do? He prunes the vine. He cleans up the branches. Now maybe some of you have done this. You ever had fruit trees? What do you have to do? You've got to go clean off the little sucker branches that grow on them. Why? Because they take away the energy from the branches that are producing fruit. Some of you may be going through a purging time in your life right now. God's pruning you. Pruning times are painful times. Nobody enjoys being pruned. Especially trees, right? Some of us don't. I mean, people go in and they get all this work done on themselves to try to improve their look and improve what's going on. People don't enjoy that process generally. But why do we prune trees? So they will bear more fruit. You cut away all the branches that aren't bearing fruit and you cut away the bits of the branches that are just growing the wrong direction or not helping to provide the most fruit. And what happens when a tree is pruned well? It bears more fruit. Now, when you prune a tree, does it immediately, like the next day, have more fruit on it? No. It takes time, doesn't it? And so if you're going through a pruning time in your life, God's taking some things off or reshaping you or doing some things in your life that are kind of painful and it's a struggle and it's hard, it's because He wants you to bear more fruit. It's because He cares about you. What kind of farmer or 
person who's growing an orchard that cares about his trees just lets them grow wild and doesn't take care of them and not have any fruit. That wouldn't be a good caretaker, would it at all? But God cares for the vine. The vine is Jesus. God cares for the branches. The branches are you and me. And he prunes them. God wants you to have a fruitful life. So how's your personal relationship with Jesus? How's your personal relationship with Him? Because it is your personal relationship with Jesus where you get your forgiveness, where you get your hope, where you get your strength, your comfort. Everything that you need comes from your connection to the vine. Jesus said, I am the vine. And finally this morning, John 14, go back one chapter, John 14, 1 through 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look at verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. If you were here last Sunday, what did Jesus say in John chapter 12? He said, now is my soul troubled. We go through troubling times. Some of you this morning, maybe your heart is troubled. Jesus is speaking, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. He says, you, follow, you all say you follow God, so believe in me. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Aren't you looking forward to that? If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus always speaks the truth. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Jesus says, you know the way to get there, the way to get to heaven, the way where you can come to the place where there are lots of mansions. Here's Thomas again. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. We don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And before we're too hard on Thomas, that's how we act sometimes too. God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know the way that I'm supposed to go. I, I don't know where you are in all of this. God, what am I supposed to do? God, you brought me into this situation and there is no way out. That's what we say, isn't it? That's what we think. And we question God. We get angry at God. We get discouraged. We get frustrated at life because we say, God, you've told me you're going to this place and you're doing these things, and, but I don't know how to get there. And Jesus very simply says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Very quickly, he says he's the way. When you don't know where you're supposed to go, walk in the way. Follow Jesus. Trust in His leading. When you pull out your map, it ought to look a whole lot like a Bible. <laughs> it should be the Bible. All right, God, what are you leading me? What do you tell me to do today? I'm not sure where I'm supposed to be a year from now or next month or next week even, but what should I do today? What does God's Word say? If we're living in disobedience to God's clear commands of His Word, we aren't living as if Jesus is the way, are we? Well, I know that's what you said, but you don't understand my situation. Get back in the way. 
Follow Jesus. He's the way. He's the right path. But I can't answer all these problems and all this struggle, and I need some answers. Okay, but get on the right path, and you just might find the right answers. When you're out there lost in the woods somewhere, and you can't figure out how to get where you're supposed to go, but God's at least told you enough how to get back to the path, at least get back to the path, and then trust Him to take you where you need to go. Be in the way. Follow the way. Jesus is the way. And secondly, Jesus says He's the truth. He's the truth. Jesus will never, ever, ever lie to you. And that's hard for some of us to wrap our heads around because we're used to everybody lying to us and not being able to trust anybody's motives and what anybody is doing. Jesus is the truth. God's word is truth. And what did Jesus say about the truth? He says, the truth will set you free. You say, but I, I'm not sure. He's the truth. You can trust what he says. And then he says, I am the life. Jesus is the life. He's the only way to eternal life. There's not multiple ways. There's only one way. Jesus is the only way to happiness. He's the only way to hope. He's the only way to life. He's the only way to real purpose. He's the only way to wisdom. He's the only way to forgiveness. He's the only way to heaven. Jesus is the only way to truth, and He's the only way to life. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him. So what did Jesus say? He said, I am the bread. He'll satisfy your needs. He'll satisfy the struggles of your soul. He said, He is the light. I am the light. He'll bring light in the darkness of this world and in the light and the darkness that's in your life. He is the door. He's the only way to get in. And He's there to provide protection for the sheep. He's the door. And He's the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth His life for His sheep. Wouldn't you like to be able to follow somebody that would be willing to die for you? And that will always lead you in the right path? That's the kind of shepherd I want. And then He says... I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you're spiritually dead, He can give you life. If you're worried about physical death, realize there is life in Jesus. And your physical body will die, but your spiritual body will live forever. And then He said, He's the true vine. I am the vine. How's your personal relationship with Jesus? And then number seven, the final I am statement that Jesus makes in the book of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We've been going through and we've covered almost all of these in our messages. We've just been working through the book of John. And next week, we'll resume back in John chapter 13. And if you want to start reading ahead, you can. But I just felt like it was very important for us to go back and look at all these I am statements together, all at one time. Maybe you can write down your list. I hope some of you wrote down those seven I am statements of Jesus. And maybe you can print it up and put it on your mirror at the house when you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh man, I got all this stuff to do today and I don't know how I'm going to do it, what I'm going to do. And you can look at that list and remind yourself who Jesus is. 
Maybe you come home from a busy day at work and it'll be hard and be a struggle. Maybe because something happened, you're afraid you might even lose your job and how are you going to pay your bills? And then remind yourself, wait a minute, I'm not the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Or you're, dealing, you're struggling, some loved one is going through a hard time. You're going through a hard time because of what somebody did to you. Wait a minute. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Folks, we need to be reminded often of spiritual truth. That's part of the reason we come to church as often as we do. Come as much as you can because this is one place where you can be reminded of truth. This is one place where you can be encouraged with other believers in Christ. But you need to be in God's Word on your own too. You can't have a personal relationship with God that's going to really encourage you and help you if this is the only time you have any communication with God all week. What's your prayer life like? Some of us, we're really good at praying, but we're not very good at reading God's Word. Hey, a relationship is a two-way street, right? Two-way of communication. Let God speak to you through His Word. So I'm struggling to understand it. Keep reading it and ask God for understanding. Ask questions from other believers. We'll help you understand God's Word. That's part of discipleship, learning to understand God's truth and walk in it. But remind yourself of God's truth on a regular basis. It ought to be daily, probably multiple times a day. Got to go back and say, wait, wait a minute. I'm facing this hard time. Who is God? What is He doing? Or here's the other thing that happens to us. We talk about hard times a lot. What if life's going really great and, and you just came home and, and you got a big promotion at work and your wife says, hey, we're having quadruplets and, and, and you're just so excited about all this stuff going on in your life. No, that's not a birth announcement or anything for us. Okay. We have our five. But what if everything's going great and you look around, everything's awesome. Here's what often happens then too. Oh, good. Now I got it all figured out. I don't need God anymore. When life is good, He's still the way, the truth, and the life. When everything's working well and you got money in the bank and you're paying all your bills and it's great, and hey, we're just going to go on vacation for the next six months. What happens? People go on vacation from God. Because I don't need it anymore. And then God brings the difficulty back in our life sometimes to push us back to Himself. That's what the shepherd does with the sheep, isn't it? And just because you're going through a hard time, I'm not saying God's punishing you, not necessarily. He may be, but he might just be pruning you up so you can bear more fruit. Don't be afraid of the pruning because he's the master gardener. He's going to bring forth much fruit through you if you'll allow him to. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I know I've covered a lot of ground this morning, but I thought it important to put all this together in one message, and I hope you found it helpful, and I hope that you'll take these thoughts and these ideas this truth from God's Word and apply it in your life. Lord, I don't know every struggle. I don't know every need. I don't know every victory. But Lord, you do. You know what's going on in the heart of every person here. You know us better than we know ourselves. Lord, I pray for each person that's here this morning. Each person that hears this message that you would work in their hearts. 
Lord, we've been presented with truth. Now it's up to us of whether or not we're going to obey it and trust in it. God, I believe there's people here this morning, probably all of us in one way or another, need something that was in this message this morning. Lord, I pray for each person here. Let us walk in truth and righteousness. Let us follow you, realizing Jesus is the great I Am. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.